Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, the ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Well, I need to prepare you for some, I guess in certain circles, they say this is a bit techy, this is a bit nerdy, this is a bit over-detailed, but um, it is what it is. Here's what we're going to do. In about a month, a little less than a month, I'll be interviewing Tom Siegfried, and he's a PhD up at Boston College, and he is... In my on my in my view and on my list, he's one of the two people in the last fifty years that has medically turned the world on its head, and so specifically in the area of cancer. Uh, he did this primarily in the last oh fifteen years, if not the last twenty years, and we'll be interviewing him on on not only his uh, theories of cancer, what causes cancer, but more about how to treat cancer is what we're going to focus on but it has application in terms of a cause and a preventing cancer as well. But more importantly, as, as I've always said in a number of these conference, a number of these uh, calls, these discussions we're having, is that you have to be able to ask yourself, what does this have to do with the ketogenic diet? And I, I want to reinforce those points, that line, so you get something out of what we're going to talk about, because it is going to get a little bit technical, and I'm going to try to generalize things of it, uh, aspects of this, so it can be usable to you. Because my approach has always been, even with patients, regardless of why they came in, is that I'm, in essence, forcing them to learn a little more. I'm not just going to tell them what to do. You're going to eat this banana. You're going to eat this particular steak. You're going to eat that, and this is how much you're going to eat. It's like, I'll do a little bit of that, but they have to, I would give them references of things to read about, you know, unless they want me to pay me on an hourly basis to dispense this information in front of them, they're going to have to take it upon themselves. And it's a sign of health to develop your own source of information and your own ability to do some critical thinking. And those are the issues that those are the, the principles I'm supporting here by this podcast. Okay. So I came into being very interested in the ketogenic diet, not just because I'm a naturopathic doctor. Frankly, this should have dawned on me 20 years earlier than it did, but it did not. And it came into my life, even though I had seen Tom Tom Siegfried present on cancer and his application of the ketogenic diet in a context of things that he does. But I kind of thought this is one sort of over my head. I don't see these kind of patients and the amount of time it's going to spend to really know what he's talking about and to be able to think that I'm going to apply or be instrumental in applying this to patients that come through my door into our clinic was very remote. So it just wasn't something I was going to spend my time doing. So then how did I change my mind? What came into my life that made me think about, well, you know, actually his work is very, very important, you know, and actually he has and, and the word is a little bit overused, he has created a paradigm shift or renewed as a renaissance of a paradigm shift. That might be a tad redundant in terms of rethinking how cancer grows and how to treat cancer. 
So why did I come into it? Well, my wife had um, an angioma that had to be removed. And subsequently, we learned about the ketogenic diet. We think that's kept her uh, cancer from never coming back. The thing is, you can't disprove a negative. So we're living with that thought. And I was very sick, given um, severe ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, which I had never had in my life. And I came into, there's a podcast in my story back there. So for those two personal health reasons, drove me to look into the ketogenic diet. I went to conferences over the last three or four years, medical conferences of Florida and throughout the East Coast for the most part, and uh, saw Tom present twice again. Talked to him briefly to thank him for his work. And so now I actually think his work is vital and I am where I am and he is where he is and it's going to be such a privilege to talk to him. However, the interviews that he has given to people and the people he works with, he works with them so intensely that on a given podcast, there's so many layers to his understanding and his application of calorie-restricted ketogenic diet for cancer and along with other things that I decided to designate two podcasts to some of the topics that he will be bringing up. So when you listen to him, you will not say, oh, this is over my head, just what I did 20 years ago, whenever it was 15 years ago, I first heard him, that, oh, this is over my head and I'll never have a reason to understand this. And by the way, my reasons for getting involved in the ketogenic diet have nothing to do with cancer. That may well be your case, but I think if you know why ketosis, the ketogenic diet, is critical for cancer, and you could say, well, it's epilepsy as well. We've talked about that, and we've interviewed Beth a long time ago about epilepsy, works for the Charlie Foundation, that you say, well, I'm not epileptic and I don't have cancer. Why am I listening to this? I think those are the canaries in the mine shaft, as they say. It's because ketogenic diet is critically important for these particular contexts, for these particular situations, that that's the piece of information we can bring home to ourselves and saying is those rare, specific, intense situations it really is a deliverable universal truth that we can bring into our lives. We don't have to live as a cancer patient. We don't have to live as a child or an adult with epilepsy, but you have to ask, and we, we talked about fasting before that, back when we did the history and evolution of fasting and the ketogenic diet, which is strongly related. And then later we talked about fasting, the fasting mimicking diet, which is a variation or a ketogenic diet per my view. That, you know, why are all these things so effective for these situations? And we're talking about them now. It's because it's now we have the means to go deeper in understanding how they work. And that's through all the technology, of course. And now everybody can basically do this from their own home. You don't have to go to a special place to get this done. This is you bootstrapping yourself up with some help like this podcast and other podcasts are talking about it as well. So the point was these extreme situations like cancer and epilepsy are valuable to know about. So back to the interview coming up with Tom Siegfried, some contexts, some things we want to talk about through at least two podcasts are going to be Otto Warburg. 
Tom refers to him and the Warburg effect and the Warburg hypothesis. What does that have to do with anything? It's about cancer. So we're going to go into that so you'll understand that without being thrown. Understand when you listen to a talk, if there's too many unknowns, people stop listening. They stop receiving the information, stop being able to understand where the useful information is. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the difference between cancer as a metabolic disease and what they call the somatic mutation theory of cancer. You don't need to know what that is now. We'll get into it. Uh, I don't think in this podcast, but later. Why is a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet used? And what is the glucose ketone index? Some of you that have been listening before, we talked about that on fasting and we went through our group fasting together. We found that very effective. How targeting gene mutations is only targeting downstream effects of cancer, meaning it's really not the best place to focus your energy, but that's where our current model is. We'll get into that. Respiration versus fermentation. I'm probably already lost you on both of those. We'll get into that because those are two words you really need to have a, 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 a layman's handle on and to say, okay, respiration, he means this, fermentation, he means that. I know some of you already have an idea, but I think it's it's often confusing when you hear it into conversation of cancer, you get distracted trying to figure that out. The concept, and this is part of his hypothesis, his being Tom's hypothesis and strategy he's worked on that's now being implemented worldwide, not in the United States, given our medical infrastructure and standard of care, is what is the concept of what they call press pulse, both evolutionarily, which is where Tom borrowed this, talk about that, and then how he applies that into uh, the cancer strategy, uh, cancers in general, and why it's why it's more important to target what is the common aspect in all cancers, as opposed to their unique differences in their, when, when you hear people saying, oh, they did, a, they did a, um, a genotype on that type of cancer, that's considered a secondary effect, that the genes that pop out and make it very cancer-specific came because it was already a metabolic problem. We'll get into that. If that was a little bit over your head, it won't be, okay? So take my word for it. So today, what I want to start with is, I want to start with talking about Otto Warburg. I think one of the, one of the things is, uh, half my family relations are German, and my dad's first name was Otto, so that's neat. But Otto Warburg uh, was came from that era of really interesting thinkers of the late 1800s and early 1900s. That's when... As you remember hearing before, that's when fasting was all a rage, late 1900s. Certainly it goes back decades before that, but it became the thing, fasting in the late 1890s and up until the advent of the ketogenic diet, which was arguably 1921 to 1924, and then insulin coming out and being publicly available in 1924. So there's a period of about 30 years in which a lot of discoveries, a lot of vitamins was the first time that vitamins were discovered. Uh, Warburg had um, a part to play in that as well. Okay, so Otto Warburg lived from 1883 and he died in 1970. He lived through World War I and, and through World War II. So just, just being alive on Earth and in Germany during those two wars, he was a soldier in one in the first and, and an uh, academic in the second. And he won the Nobel Prize. 
1931. And he was nominated for Nobel Prize about 47 times from what I've heard and what I've read. So he was curious, well-developed. He developed a lab uh, in Germany uh, full of famous people like Krebs and others that um, went on to create their own fame. So what he's known about, and I'm going to link this to cancer instead of giving you a biography of uh, Otto Warburg, is that the two references you're going to hear is the Warburg effect and the Warburg hypothesis. Okay, so it goes like this, that per his research, and he was the first one to say, you know, cancer is not normal in the sense that it doesn't have a normal metabolism, meaning where it gets its fuel, its energy, is not like the rest of the body. So as you and I both know, we need to breathe oxygen in order to live. We stop breathing oxygen, air, which oxygen is in air, is that we would um, eventually suffocate and die. So we need oxygen. That's the point. So chemical reactions that need oxygen, in essence, are generally collectively referred to as respiration. I'm going to throw that out there. Respiration. So see, when, when somebody says, oh, by respiration, meaning that's with oxygen, oxygen is needed for that. So whatever that means. So when you have your muscles, you know, muscles and working out and, and just to have life for your heart and to burn, I mean, for your heart, for all these things to, to work in your body, for your metabolism to work body-wide, you need oxygen. So he was the first to acknowledge that, well, you know, that's not really the case. Um, cancer cells really don't need oxygen. And, and so how is that? Is it, and I'm not going to get into the specifics, but there is a thing called glycolysis, which is um, the breaking down of glucose. That's where it comes. Your lysis is breaking down, gluco. So is glucose. So you're breaking down of glucose. It's a 10-step process. So that's called glycolysis. Start with glucose and you break it down. But none, none of those steps involve oxygen. So it's considered a fermentation pathway. So you had oxygen, which is respiration, needs oxygen, and you have fermentation, which doesn't need oxygen. So fermentation is considered a very ancient pathway, you know, way back before there was even oxygen on earth. Obviously there's things, there's a lot of this is hypothetical, but a lot of it makes sense. And so as evolution began from a single cell to multiple cells, from prokaryotes to eukaryotes, there was the ability of, of you know, oxygen was initially a toxic gas in the world. And so it took an evolution to be able to deal with oxygen. So the non-oxygen, the existing way of growing and creating energy was um, fermentation without oxygen, breaking down of glucose and sugars in general. Sugars in general have glucose as part of there, but it's breaking down all sugars without oxygen. So that's fermentation. So what you got to get out of that ancient pathway existed before there was oxygen on earth. We've actually kept it into our metabolism. It's within parts of our, our has ability in our mitochondria. As many of you learned in high school, you have the, uh, you know, with and without the breaking down of ATP, how you can make it without oxygen, you get 
very little in the way of uh, energy, ATP, two ATPs without oxygen, and 36 with oxygen. I'm going to keep it very simple of getting you confused in all the different steps. But the reason people thought, well, how could cancer survive on a very inefficient means of creating energy, you know, when it's much more efficient to use oxygen? So it was kind of dismissed or forgotten about for a while. But he was the one saying that, no, cancer is caused because it is, it's a whole system that is dependent on being able to burn glucose. And it grows very quickly, of course, and there's a lot of other aspects of cancer, but the fact that it needs no oxygen puts it in its own little class, puts it in its kind of a protected world. So if you shut off the oxygen, cancer is still good. Or if you shut off the oxygen for a lot of other things, it's not so good. It won't survive. So the Warburg hypothesis was the idea that the, the driver of cancer was inefficient, poor respiration caused by some sort of insult, and we'll say environmental toxins, I'll plot that in. And that was actually what he thought too. He was His studies were about the understanding of what uh, didn't cause cancer, but how cancer grew. And so that's why it was the fermentation versus respiration. As a, uh, it wasn't a research, it was his belief that he thought cancer was caused by environmental insults, that is insults to the mitochondria. So where does that come from in the environment? And um, that's still pretty much the thought today. It comes from environmental toxins and or poor, poor nutrition, but it's pretty much the same thing as what you're saying. Okay, and so that was that aspect of it. And what Tom was has taken into when he talks about what well, going back to the Warburg effect or the um, Otto Warburg is that he sort of resurrected this idea that because cancer had a metabolism based on glucose and not based on oxygen, right? Fermentation versus respiration, that that means that if we could shut off the fuel, the fermentable fuel, so what would the fermentable fuel be? The fermentable fuel would be glucose. The fermentable fuel would be sugar, okay? So whether you're talking about fructose or sucrose or any of the other sugars, we're still all of that. They're part of the pathway. Okay, so then the theory becomes if we can shut off the glucose, then maybe we can shut down the cancer because the cancer has a predisposition to obviously needing glucose, just like we think we need oxygen, which we just mentioned that we do. If you shut off oxygen to us, we would die. So if we can shut off glucose to the fermentable fuel to cancer, the cancer will die or wither away. Okay, that's a big point. So what can do this now? So where's this ketogenic diet come in? Well, one thing about cancer cells is that they cannot live on ketones. They cannot live on free fatty acids. So that's not a direction to go in for if you're a cancer cell. Cancer cells, you want sugar, 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 baby. You want sugar. That's your fuel. There's no substitutes. There's no if, ands, or maybes. It's a primitive, it's, it's a primitive metabolic ability. So it's a lower metabolic ability. The more sophisticated metabolic metabolism is dependent on oxygen. So if we can 
And the body has the ability, all other cells, nearly all other cells, has the ability to work from, make energy from ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate, that we've talked about many episodes. So, well, that's pretty neat. So what does that mean? That means, how do you get to ketones? Obviously, through the ketogenic diet, you get through fasting, right? So fasting has preexisted before a ketogenic diet. So now we're rich on, we figured out how to, you know, feed our body on ketones and not on glucose. By the way, our body has its own abilities to make glucose. So just because you're not eating glucose doesn't mean you're not creating glucose. Just like when we talk about diabetes, right? So, but if we stop eating if we stop eating glucose, if we start eat, stop eating carbs, that's a severe step down in terms of available glucose for cancer cells. So they still have a problem. They're not, we haven't turned off the switch. It's not that easy. There's a flip. We just turned off all glucose. However, the thinking is, well, what else do we need to do to turn off the glucose? How do we stop the body from making its own glucose? So the, the body makes its glucose through glucagon and an number of other things, but it's from the liver. So how do we stop the liver from making its glucose? Well, um, there are other agents, they say. You can say chemical agents. You can say metformin would be one. And if you're in the naturopathic world, you'd be thinking about things like berberine. Um, But you're trying to stop the other avenues, the other pathways that create glucose. Pretty straightforward. So if we can shut that off and we can stop the intake the consuming of, of exogenous glucose, then we have a lock on blocking the glucose fuel to cancer cells. So that's a big leg up. So that's what the ketogenic diet does. So that's why the component of Tom's strategy of cancer as a metabolic disease, and that's the name of his book he came out with in 2004, which is about five inches thick. And uh, it has really good illustrations. And there's a lot of individual stories that uh, elaborate and a lot of really interesting points that I think most of us are really enjoy. So his implementation, his inclusion of the ketogenic diet was a calorie restricted ketogenic diet. So that means you're always eating less. It's a type of fast. You obviously can't go on forever, but they're fasting. You're, you're, in a ketogenic diet one, so the idea you're high fat, low carbs, moderate protein, and you're pulling back on the number of uh, overall calories that are less than what you ideally would have. So that's a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet. So that's that part that has to be implemented. The other reason that has to be implemented is because there are other agents and other components of this particular strategy for cancer that all medications that many cancer patients are on do affect your blood glucose. So even though they're meant to be maybe chemotherapeutic for some other aspect that is a side effect that they may stimulate the body to make glucose. The world's not perfect. Drugs are not perfect. Um, and this is one of them. So that's why the calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, to get a lock on a minimal production, ideally no production of glucose, and therefore that's a major fuel to cancer. So the other aspect in understanding 
not just Warburg. So you have Otto Warburg, and he's the one that came up with this. This idea was brought forward, it's been discussed, was dismissed, probably left left for since the 1930s, that's 70 years. Nearly 70 years it was forgotten, or at least not uh, brought to light pretty much until Tom and a whole interest in the ketogenic diet brought it forward. And so now, you know, Tom brought it to the high art of what he's doing in terms of cancer, that the if we could think that cancer only depended on glucose, what I've said so far would be all you have to do. Get on a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet for whatever kind of cancer you have, and you'd be good. That's still very effective, by the way. It's just that it's not everything you could do. So if you had 100 people in a room and they had, let's say, 100 prostate cancer, prostate cancers, 100 breast cancers, 100 name your cancer, and you had people doing a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, some would do very well and some would not do very well. So why is that? So it's certainly not a, a, a known. We don't, have certain, we don't have a lot of human studies at all. So all these are mice studies. That's how we're getting this information because you can't experiment that much with, with humans. Humans have to basically experiment on themselves and say, hey, I have cancer and this is what I'm going to do. I've done all the reading. And that's how you get these cases. That's how you get these anecdotal cases. And these therapies are offered overseas. We'll get to that probably when we talk to Tom. Okay, well, there's another fuel. There's another fermentable fuel. Now, you know what ferment means. Ferment means without oxygen. There's another fuel for cancer cells that does not need oxygen. That's the last thing you need to know. And you kind of wonder, well, is there a list of fermentable fuels that cancer cells need? I know it's all right. I blocked the glucose, and that took a lot of personal effort and discipline, and maybe even needed a team of support to do that. Well, you got that out of the way, and that's a big thing you got out of the way. The second uh, fermentable fuel is called glutamine. Now, glutamine is what they call a conditionally essential amino acid, meaning it is not one of the eight essential amino acids. It's kind of a ninth. And why is it called conditionally essential? Uh, conditionally essential means that you can run yourself into deficiencies of glutamine. And in those cases, it would be essential. And glutamine is also the preferred fuel for the small intestine and um, for the gut, you might say. So it's a preferred fuel. It's what it needs. So the liver needs branched-chain amino acids. The small intestine needs um uh, it needs glutamine, and the large intestine basically goes on uh, ketones. Isn't that something? So you can't shut off glutamine completely for long periods of time because you'll be shutting off, you'll have a problem with your small intestine. It's just not going to be able to replenish yourself, and it will eventually die. Also, uh, glutamine has a lot of independent roles in your immune system by itself. So when you're sick, flu, cold, or let's say you had a skin burn, you know, or a fire burn, you, your need for glutamine goes up. Well, two things. One is you go, well, what do we get glutamine? Do I, what foods do we get glutamine? Glutamine is so abundant in your body, i.e. your muscles are an endless reserve. That's why you can have uh, starving people still have enough glutamine in their body to um, fight off some illnesses and so on. So there's an endless reserve of glutamine in your body, primarily from your muscles. Okay. Well, wait a minute then. How's this going to work? How are you going to be able to block glucose and glutamine? Well, those take other particular 
what they call agents, other particular um, items we'll talk about later, but that is a separate topic and issue and problem, if you will. However, they're out there and there's a number of medications that are actually uh, off patent, meaning they're cheap now and they can be used. But here's the trick. If you now, and I'm going to use the word wrongly, I have to rethink my wording here. I was about to use the word suffocate, but suffocate means, you know, deprive of oxygen. And we just said that cancer, it depends on fermentation of two fermentable fuels, glucose and glutamine. So suffocate doesn't really make any sense, does it? But if you could block both, if you could guarantee, and now you know you have a lock at blocking glucose and a lock at blocking glutamine, you know, you'll kiss that cancer goodbye. Well, that's true, but now here's the problem. If you can suddenly shut down cancer and have it die in its tracks, wherever it is in your body, that's probably going to be a lot of dead cancer cells floating around in your body, a lot of debris that has to be cleaned up by your body. So it's not just, and that isn't the problem, you get a, a toxic response that overloads your immune system and you die of the cleanup in essence. So you can't just shut off one and then add shut off the other. You have to shut off one completely as best you can. So that's the calorie-restricted ketogenic diet. And to that, you have to add moments. And so um, Tom has a reference to his strategy, which is called the press pulse. A press is a consistent negative pressure. So that would be the calorie-restricted ketogenic diet that you've, either if you're picturing yourself as the cancer patient that you are on, right? So that's a pressure. You've now just made ketones and there's no, there's no glucose available. And you might even be on metformin, so there really is no glucose available or, or something similar. And now you can't go 100% all the time on with blocking glutamine. You have to do intervals. So those are the pulses. pulses. You hit it every so often. So 100% on all the time with the ketones, no glucose, and then you add moments of just blocking the glutamine. And so that will be that will be very destructive and your body will have, and then you'll stop doing it and your body will have a chance to remove the debris. And you can say, well, isn't that going to be when the cancer comes back because now it can access its glutamine again? Yep, you're right. And there's things that need to be worked out. But however, now blocking, there are moments in which both are blocked 100%. So you're going to have these pulse times in which the cancer has a very brutal uh, environment to live. It has no sugar, it has no glutamine, and it just can't survive. And to that, on, so now you know the difference between a pressure, a consistent, unrelenting pressure effect, and then an intermediate, inter, uh, an interval of other negative effects. That would be the blocking the glutamine. There's another aspect, if you listen to me talking, when I said, well, you know, cancer can survive on in, on an anaerobic environment, meaning without, without oxygen. And in fact, if it's put in a, an oxygen environment, if it's exposed to oxygen, it does not do very well. So therefore, they're using that information as a third variable to pulse. 
So they're going to, we're going to, or however you want to see this in this conversation, we're going to inject, I'll tell you how to do that in a second, we're going to inject more oxygen for this pulsed period of time, right? So we're giving more oxygen, we're exposing the cancer cells to more oxygen, which will die um, due to what they call ROS, reactive oxygenated species. But it's basically exposure of oxygen. That's going on. The glutamine is being blocked and the glucose has been blocked for a while. Okay, so now we have these pulses going on at the same time. And so this triad of three aspects, so they call the blocking of oxygen, what they call hyperbaric oxygen treatment. So you're going into a tank, think of divers. If you've never seen a, they call it HBOT, hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Um, and what you go into, that can be a hard shell. So that's what divers go into. It's a big hard shell. And they put it, and they will put 100% oxygen. Now we're talking about cancer patients, or they'll dial whatever percentage is right. It should be 90% oxygen and 10% atmospheric air, or 100% oxygen. But for a particular period of time, a couple hours, you will be in a tank and you'll be breathing under pressure um, O2. And so this is going to get deeper into your body. So now you're doing a greater exposure of your whole body to oxygen. That's what hyperbaric oxygen treatments are. So you're doing that at the same time you're on a glutamine blocker. At the same time, you've been monitored to getting into the restricted ketogenic uh, diet. And and, uh, that's pretty much the bigger outline, these particular variables. And they can each be monitored and tweaked and measured. Look into your blood to find out, you know, what is the oxygen saturation in various parts of your body, of course. They can they can double check, see how much uh, glutamine is being blocked. And um, there is one other aspect of these three things. So you just need to think about these three things. For the ketones, uh, for the um, calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, one of the things, and this is what Tom uh, co-created, it was called the a glucose ketone index. And so there's a ratio as you're starting to shut down your glucose, which is um, which is a ratio between the two. And most people uh, on a day-to-day that have nothing to do with the ketogenic diet, their number, to give you a number out of the blue, is usually between 15 and, and 30. You know, that's a normal number for a normal person that has nothing to do with the ketogenic diet. So as you get into fasting, as we did, uh, a group of us, we went into a a seven-day fast. Other people did seven-day fast, five days, three days, whatever they could. But in taking down their own data of their glucose and their ketones, they could calculate. And there's a calculator that's online. I'll put it in the show notes. And I I also put it in the uh, fasting podcast that I did a while back, is that you get your number and you'll see that where you want to be, if you're a cancer patient, you want to be at one or less. It does not, according to Tom and the research they've done and his team, you need to be under one. That's the most therapeutic. So if you're one or under, that's where you want to be. So it was interesting. In the course of the fast, it took me four days to get to uh, under one. And I did start off, I think, at 13. So um, they monitor that. So that in itself can be 
tuned up to be is to, to show that you are definitely in an effective ketosis, right? Because you're under one with a glucose ketone index. That's first thing. Then you go in for your HBOT treatments. Then you go in pulsed, right? Then you go in for, at the same time, your uh, glutamine pulsed block. And that basically is the strategy. So in, in, in giving you this overall large outline, uh, I want you to realize how vital it was for the body to be able to have this alternative fuel system that is A, not based on glucose. So glucose is the primitive is the primitive fermentation pathway. And so by having an alternative pathway that we get through fasting, that we get through starving, that we get through the ketogenic diet, that we get through the modified fasting diet. So by having that alternative fuel, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and there's other ketones, but primarily it's about 90%, 99% of that, um, that is used by the body, is an amazing ability to have. And so Tom's reference to cancer is a metabolic disease, not a genetic disease. That is cancer, chasing down a specific cancer mutation for a specific uh, cancer is only partially successful because you're looking at the effects. It's the process of the cancer that kicks out all these mutations and you're chasing one of these mutations and shutting that down. And that's assuming that that, can't, that particular genetic mutation is targetable by some agent out there that can stop and inhibit it. So there's a lot of ifs on that. That's why it's variable. But when you look at cancer as a metabolic disease, then your objective is let's shut down the fuel that supplies cancer, which we just talked about, the glutamine and the glucose. And then the cancer will just recede, wither away. But we have to be careful about doing this. And there's a lot of details we're getting better and better at. So we'll we'll talk about some other cases that have actually come and been successful and uh, where this has to go. So we're going to go over this a little more, a little more detail. But know that when you have your hands around your ability to be in a ketogenic diet, not always and in perpetuity, but as I say, as base camp, as your 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 home diet, that that is quite a health accomplishment. And you can even fine tune that when you want to get into the glucose ketone index. Totally up to you. It's so important that it is used part of, as a main component for uh, treating cancer as a metabolic disease. So I'll end tonight there and hope that I didn't babble on too much and that you understood how important the ketogenic diet is in the, t- in the context of treating cancer. And next we'll go on some of the details we talked about that I've read off the beginning of this podcast so that when I do have an interview with Tom Seyfried and he mentions the Warburg effect or the Warburg hypothesis or any of these things, you will not get lost in saying, what the heck is he talking about? So we're going to de-jargonize that conversation in case it gets to be too much jargon, because I think there's plenty of takeouts here that you can use for your own situation. And by the way, since we're starting this ahead of time, feel free to send me in questions that you may have about what is the application of a ketogenic diet towards cancer in, name your cancer, name your question, and maybe I'll use those when I'm talking to Tom. 
Okay. In the very least, I'll probably get back to you or maybe it might even be another podcast. Okay. With that, have a great night. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.